I've been uh, thinking about uh, congregational meetings this week, considering we have one, and, and remembering my first congregational meeting, N- not at Lake Avenue Church, but at a church where I had uh, been going to in high school, where I accepted Christ, and I was a part of this, this church, and, and one day, I, I, it was a Sunday, I remember my youth pastor said to me, um, our, I, I'd like you to stay after church today because we have a congregational meeting and we need you to work the slides. Uh, you could do the slides from the back. And I said two things. One, what's a congregational meeting? And two, does this pay? Um, and he said, well, if you do it, it's a half hour and I'll take you to lunch afterwards. That's all I needed. So I show up and I find out that it's a congregational meeting. All we were doing was approving the budget and then in that tradition, in that denomination, you would see the, the, any ordained pastor, you would see their whole salary package. You'd see what the insurance they had and how much they took home and if they had any other like kind of bells and whistles to their, to their package. And, and when it was time to approve the pastor's salary package, uh, it was not a half hour meeting. A uh, question, I remember the first one. Um, well, I don't think we need to give his kids orthodontia this year. And it said very, very firmly. Then another question about, well, why, I don't think he deserves fill in the blank. And what was supposed to be a half-hour meeting and, and lunch turned into a two-hour meeting and a sobering reality moment for me um, that, man, there's conflict in the church. Um, it, was, it was showing itself as orthodontia care because when I went to lunch afterwards, I go, help me understand as a 16-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid, what is all this about? And as my youth pastor explained to me some of the conflict that many were having in the congregation around the pastor at the time, none of those things were actually shared in the meeting. None of those things he told me were ever said, but what was said were different comments of a a lack of endorsement and let's just kind of um, almost squeeze him out of here is what it felt like. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, um, I'm used to this in my family of origin, but this has been like a really beautiful place for me. I've met Jesus here, and I, I love being a part of the church, and this youth ministry is so fun, and I, I know all these people within the church, all these relationships, and there was something about that meeting that was a really helpful lesson for me, uh, because I think up to that point in my life, the goal was just find a family, find a church with no conflict, and then I've arrived, Right? And I think the reality of the journey for all of us is we still kind of function that way, that the real health is around the lack of conflict in a family, or you're a really healthy church if there's no conflict, but the reality is that conflict just is. Conflict is a part of being human, and it's not the avoidance of conflict we need to go after, it's functioning in a healthy, mature, honest way within conflict that might be the mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When we put this series together, one of the things I knew for sure and was that we had to get to Acts 15. We're going to close our series in the next two weeks, Pastor Chuck and myself together, and we are jumping from chapter 8 to 15. I'm going to catch us up really briefly in a moment because I think in Acts 15 what we're going to see even today and next week is that this amazing movement of the Spirit and the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ that in many ways has been flourishing and growing, yes, with persecution, yes, with death, but all that's been at the hands of the non-believing world in some sense. And here we are in Acts 15, and we see a conflict, a conflict within the church of Jesus, 
and how what that conflict was about, how they dealt with that conflict is a timely message for you and for me, not just because we're part of Lake Avenue Church, because you are and I am alive in 2019 in a world that has no clue, quite honestly, how to deal with conflict. Civility, in many senses, I think you would agree, is lost. Dialogue and discernment and how to navigate difficulty and complexity and disagreement is something that we can't quite see very clearly anywhere. And anytime we want to see something, we ought to do what we do with everything is come to the Word of God and allow the Word of God to speak to us, to show us, to unveil to us a way of living and especially in light of conflict, because it's 2019 and you're part of Lake Avenue Church, at least you are today and this morning. And this is a word not just for the early church, it's a word for us today. So grateful. Uh, You can't have a sermon about conflict and discernment and have it be a monologue. You've got to have some some friendship here. And that way Chuck can say all the things that you won't like as much as the things I say, or vice versa, and that can be your debate at lunch today, which one you liked better, and then uh, just don't take our insurance away, right? Okay, exactly. all right. We are in, we're jumping from the end of chapter eight last week with Pastor Amos, who was here, and he did a great job for us, and we're, we're going from eight to 15, and I've got to do my best to give you the, the, the most uh, Cliff note version of how we're making this jump of, of the gospel, because it's significant. And to breathe deeply, I already believe and sense God's calling us to come back to Acts. Um, even in 2020, we need to come back, and maybe this next section will be the 9 through 15, and there's even more after 15. So we're not done, but we're coming to an end of this series. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 9. And you're not going to actually read anything, but I want you to turn the pages with me. How's that? And then you're traveling. We're traveling together. So, chapter 9. Let me summarize. Uh, The main story in chapter 9 is Saul's conversion. Saul, someone who was persecuting uh, Christians, becomes a Christian. Some of you know the story. He's struck blind on the Damascus Road. Literally, scales from his eyes are peeled, and he uh, accepts Christ. He's baptized. And in chapter 9, he preaches his first sermon in Damascus. That's a pretty, pretty intense transformation. Um, there's a plot to kill him from the Jews, so he's sent out to Tarsus. And meanwhile, the underlying stories in 9 are the churches in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria are starting to prosper. Now remember, Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, you're going to be my, become my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We're seeing the gospel start spreading out. Judea, Samaria, chapter 9, chapter 10. I'm calling it the Jewish Christian Rebellion and Gentile Conversion. This is the story of Cornelius. This is the furthest person who deserved to hear the message of Jesus according to Jewish tradition. This is a Roman centurion. This is is someone who is just not okay. And what we have is this amazing story of Peter establishing relationship with Cornelius. Cornelius at one point mistaking him for God. And he goes, no, no, I just bring the message of God. And at Cornelius' house, that's a big no-no. He should never, Peter should never be at Cornelius' house. Peter preaches the risen Christ. The Holy Spirit descends on Gentiles. They begin speaking in tongues, and they're baptized, and the Jewish Christians are being blown away with the new group of people who are starting to accept Christ and receive the gifts. Chapter 11, Peter uh, is connecting the Gentile dots for Jewish believers. 
So the Jews are objecting that Peter's associating with Gentiles. This whole Cornelius thing and Gentiles speaking in tongues, not okay to Jewish believers. We're going to see some of that here in 15. Peter recalls the words of Jesus, that John baptized with water, but I'm baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And if the Gentiles receive the same gift as the Jews, who is Peter to withstand God? And as all Gentiles, we should be saying, amen. Thank you, Peter. So the church in Antioch grows as Gentiles are now turning to the Lord in droves. Barnabas is ministering. Saul and Barnabas are this team. And this is the first time we see the word Christian in the New Testament. Chapter 12. Uh, Peter goes to prison. He gets out of prison. It's awesome. You should read about it. Chapter 13. <laughs> new name, new mission. Uh, uh, Saul becomes Paul. This is where the name changes in chapter 13. Paul now is preaching in the synagogue. He's kicked out, but they move on, and the, there's just this kind of trajectory of low, they're moving, and they go to the city Iconium. In chapter 14, there's mixed reaction to Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, so Paul and Barnabas are forced to flee. Paul cures a, a lame man. The, there's excited crowds that are starting to declare that Paul and Barnabas are the Greek gods visiting the earth. So we have response to all this movement of the Holy Spirit within them. Um, Jews from Iconium and Antioch follow Paul. They persecute him. Churches are established, and they return to Antioch. And now we're in chapter 15. Pastor Chuck, take it away. We're going to pump the brakes for a second, right? We're going to slow down this train because there's, there's so much going on, right? Like, and if we don't, if we don't slow down, we're going we're gonna to miss it. And, and I, like, like Jeff said, I feel like we've missed so much already just in the, the glossing over of, of what's been happening. But you need to know a couple things. One of those things is it's centering around Antioch, and that's where, that's where we, we begin in Acts, uh, Acts 15. And so in pumping the brakes and slowing down, would you? If you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. 
Now then, why do you try to test God, putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, these things from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for them, the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them, telling them to abstain from food polluted from, by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So all of that. What is the conflict, right? So as Jeff and I were talking about this message, one of the things that we, we, we thought to talk about is was what really, as we drill down, what really is the conflict? And what we see is that it's a theological one, right? It's a significant theological one. We mean that very technically. Um, in that theo, God, logical thinking, it's a God thinking. How do we think about God given what we've seen and experienced? And that asks another question, right? How do we think about God, but also how do we relate to God now? How do we relate to Yahweh now? Because for thousands of years, the people of God had grown to understand relating to God in a particular way. And these last 14 chapters have been mind-blowing for the people in Jerusalem. What is going on in their city is unbelievable. I mean, we just glossed over a few chapters, and all of that stuff, jail and new believers and Roman centurions and God moving in ways that God hadn't moved before, has got to be disconcerting for Jewish Christians. Absolutely disconcerting. So who's in the midst of this conversation, right? So, um, We've got all of these people that are, that are coming. Um, one of the things to note is that the Gentile Christians who are now coming, right, to be a part of a fellowship with Jewish Christians who aren't supposed to be hanging out with Gentiles, that's causing a problem. It's a significant problem because as they have understood, as they have grown, as they have been led to believe that they are not supposed to be in relationship with these Gentiles. Yet at the same time, they're claiming the same God that they're claiming, the Jews are claiming. Antioch becomes a center, like a flashpoint in this space, right? We, over the last few chapters, and you have to read it, you'll, you'll find Antioch just popping up, popping up, and being the center place for this, for this um, reality and, and conflict. And so um, you have men uh, from Judea 
who have come down to Antioch making claims about how salvation is to be understood that's different than what Paul and Barnabas have been teaching. So much so that Paul and Barnabas now are like, whoa, 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 wait a second. We, we, don't, we don't see that. That's not what's going on. We, you're not teaching the same thing we're teaching. And so, um, and so they go up to Jerusalem. They're sent out of the church at Antioch because they said, well, we, we've got to figure this out. And we need the church's help in order to help figure this out. Now they go up to Jerusalem, but remember, they're not going to the Sanhedrin. This isn't them going to the Jewish rulers. This is them going to the church, right? And to the people that are in the church that have started this movement that, that God has begun in them. And so they go up there and they ask this very, very, very central question to their faith, to their community, to their culture. And, and the essence of their question is found in verse 5. I mean, it is the question. Some of the, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Essentially, the question was, how Jewish does a Gentile have to become to be a follower of Jesus? That, that's the big argument. How Jewish does a Gentile need to become to be a follower of Jesus? And the response, the circumcision, one, that's a, that's a physical marker for the people of God that goes back into the Mosaic kind of law. This is central to being the people of God, at least for half of the people. This was a central sign of being someone of God is that you, you, you were circumcised. And so now these Gentiles are coming to faith, and all that the Jewish believers know is that God marks his people through circumcision. They must be circumcised. And then to obey the law of Moses. They, they need to go back to school and get an Old Testament degree. They need to understand some of the context of where this faith comes from. And so this law that God gave to us as his chosen people, it needs to now be something they know and are familiar with and obey. Now, essentially, what they are saying is that the saving message of Jesus was not enough for Gentile believers. That the message of Jesus and salvation in Jesus wasn't enough, and so they were telling Gentile Christians, and what they were debating and coming and the conflict was around, um, Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus something else, that Jesus and Jesus alone isn't enough for a Gentile believer. There's more that needs to happen. Now, I think at some level, you and I as New Testament church and a New Testament people with the, with the ability to have these scriptures, we can look at that and go, wow, that, what, what an argument, interesting. But I would say at some, some kind of level, we still have these tendencies as being the people of God. Now, maybe it's not circumcision or obedience to the law, but there is a reason why there's all these different denominations that are around, because it's, there's a Jesusness, we pray, and some other stuff that needs to happen. And so for some traditions, it's Jesus plus you got to speak in tongues, and then, and now you're in. Now you can be counted as a, as a true follower of Jesus. Uh, for some traditions, it's Jesus plus wearing a suit to church, right? Got to look a certain way. There's a certain reverence we do. So we have to, we add something to it. And so to fully belong within the community, it's not just faith in Jesus. There's other things that would need to happen. 
In, in some churches, it's Jesus plus a certain amount of money that you've got to give a certain amount of money based on, and if you don't meet that certain percentage, you're not in. There's, there's more that you need to do to be considered a follower of Jesus. Jesus plus for some of us is Jesus plus and no drums in church. Or Jesus plus, just keep it the way I like it. Or frankly, in the world you and I live in, it's Jesus plus being affiliated with the right political party or position. There's, a, there's always an adding that is prevalent. And so this is not just a conflict we look back on and go, oh, those ancients, wow, look at their tendency to add more to the gospel. It's something that we add all the time. And I've got to tell you, uh, Chuck and I, has, we're both former youth pastors, and one of the lessons I had to learn uh, the hard way was that youth group for me was such a profound moment of my life being changed. And the things that my youth group did, the activities we did, the way the calendar was scheduled, the topics we talked about, the things that really changed my life, for the first season of being a youth pastor, I was just replicating all that for my kids. Because if it worked for me, it's going to work for them. And it was a humbling journey to recognize that the world had changed from the world I grew up in, and that God is doing different things and new things and reaching teenagers in a different way than he reached me. But my own tendency was to say, you have to have a relationship with God the way I have had a relationship with God. That's at the heart of this argument, too, is the way we understand relationship with God as Jewish Christians. Our Jewishness is really a huge part of that, and, and praise God for that. But it's a tendency of the Jewish Christians to say, you need to have relationship with God the way I have relationship with God. And that is the heart of the argument. So in a much deeper way than youth ministry example, what's happening is that Jewish Christians are watching these Gentiles come to faith. And remember, Gentiles, people we are, as Chuck has already said, we don't associate with them. Now they're in the church. We're part of the, they're part of the family. They got, to, they got to change a little bit more than just accept Jesus. This is the heart of the argument. And Chuck, you had a profound insight into how they dealt with that argument or the game change, I think, the game-changing verse in this first section. So, so we continue on in, in verse 7, right? And, and you get this sense of like, okay, there's a conversation that's about to happen, right? So you, you've got Paul and Barnabas and others who have come now to Jerusalem, and they're sitting down having this conversation, and that conversation um, begins with, uh, after much discussion. I love that. I would love to have known what that discussion was or how much time they took around that discussion. But after much discussion, Peter stands up and we get the cliff notes of it, right? Peter stands up and addresses the church. And this, this is one of the first times that we hear this phrase. Um, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In, in time, like this is the first time we hear that phrase, right? Peter says it. It's out of Peter's mouth. I associate that phrase with Paul, to be quite honest, hmm. right? By grace we have been saved through faith. Like I, I associate with that Paul, but, but Peter is here saying that in the midst of the Jerusalem church. This is, a, this is so significant to what's going on because what he just said could be considered heretical departure from how people thought about God. God was one who showed up, and because we did something physical, we can now associate with God and God's people, right? We went from saying the physical thing does not matter anymore. It is grace. 
it could be considered an unorthodox deviation from how people relate to God, right? The, the temple is where people related to God. And in their homes around, around these Sabbath moments is how they related to God. But now, those aren't really important anymore. You're taking the central piece for a culture, for a community of people for over thousands of years have done this and said, that's not important anymore. Y'all, do you get the conflict? If we were to talk about it today, it would be as if someone said, you know what, we've been hearing from God, and God said, grace doesn't matter anymore, something else does. Anybody got a problem with that? These people are in conflict. And I think what we need to, what we need to know is that they, as they walked through this conflict, as they tried to work through this conflict, they were in places that they had never, ever been before. It was new. It was new thoughts about God. It was new understandings. It said that the law doesn't function in the way that they thought it should or would. In short, what mattered was that that which led to the cleansing of one's heart changed. It wasn't sacrifice. It was this grace thing that I don't know if I fully get. I sing about it. I talk about it. But I don't know if I, if I can grab it all the time. Functionally, what happens is that we take the understanding of salvation from the tangible and knowable to the intangible and the unknowable. They got to know who was in because of some physical manifestation of what was reality. And now they said, that doesn't matter anymore, so now it doesn't matter. We, we just need to know this thing called grace and whether or not people profess the name of Jesus, and that's, that's got to be okay. Well, then how do we know how to whether or not to let people into our community or not? Y'all, that's the wrong question. <laughs> That, that, that's God's question. We never got the, got, the, got the directive to ask that question. That's the Holy Spirit's job, not ours. We went from this place of certainty, right, to a place of ambiguity. And, and the problem with that is that, that the function of certainty is control. When we understand all the things, we feel like we can control all the things. And that, my friends, is not the nature of faith. The nature of faith is something that we can't control, that we can't know, but we step into because we trust the one in whom we're having faith. So if we do that, then we can change away from the thing that God has moved us out of. And we've got to be willing to let it go. Which is scary, right? we got to be willing to let go some of the things that we've learned in order to learn something new that God wants to give us? I think it's really important to, to recognize like, that there are two implications of this. Two significant implications of this. One, it's a relationship with God, right? It's our relationship with God has absolutely changed. 
the law equaled the covenant, which equaled people of God, right? And if we could follow the law, then we could be a part of the covenant, then we could be the people of God. That's no longer truth. That's crazy talk to, the, to people in that space. Where had the law been repealed? They don't even have a king to be able to decree this thing. It's this crazy group of people that have been running around all through Acts saying, just believe in Jesus. And when people say, okay, crazy things happen around them. People are healed. They're speaking in tongues. Amazing things are happening and people's hearts are being turned to God. People's hearts whom we didn't expect their hearts to be turned to God. Go back to Acts 2. There's a litany of people that are invited into that space and whom the Holy Spirit falls on and Jewish Christians are looking around like, what? Thank God for that. That he would fall in a place and they're just trying to work it out. And and the question really comes down to, how do I prove now that I'm a part of this community and that I love God? How can I prove that? How do I do that now that if circumcision is gone, if the law is gone, how do we do this in this new world, in this new space? Because, man, I tell you what, it's really hard to know just by looking at somebody, right? Like, it's hard to know what's going on here. There's a second piece to this. Yeah, and it's really the evidence, because what is the evidence if we're marked by Jesus? What, how would we know even ourselves if Jesus has, has changed our life? And I know this sounds so cliche, but it's in our ability to love others. Our ability, the evidence of God's love through Jesus, evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is our ability to love others, to step into places of love. It's central in the message of Jesus, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I know that it sounds so cliche to especially those of us who are North American, this generality of love, but it's actually quite a specific kind of love in this context. It's a very difficult kind of love in this context. I mean, we've, we've, we've said the, the Gentiles and what it meant and this group of people that had oriented their entire lives and faith around avoiding this group of people. So I, I don't know who it is for you, what kind of person or what kind of people you would rather not be around. I, I know for some it's very uncomfortable around people who live on the streets. Like, and so we, we can find a way to avoid that group of people. Or maybe you, if you're, we have so many of you from other countries and you fled your country because of a neighboring country and the oppression that you felt. And think of that neighboring country and the people of that ethnicity now sitting next to you in church and saying, I've met Jesus. And how do we love? How do we be in relationship across these kinds of severe divisions that are so present in even our own lives? And I don't know who they are for you. But, but I know that they're there because I know they're there for me and I know that it, it, it's the headline of headlines of headlines every day. The divisions among us and the evidence of Jesus in our life, our evidence of our relationship with God is our relationships with one another. 
And so the question becomes this, how do we have relationship across difference? How do we break bread with people we have spent a lifetime not sitting at the table with? Either of our own decision or the culture around us has has done, like how do we actually do this? How do we be in relationship and have fellowship? And, And I just have two thoughts based on this text, and I can't give you verses. We'll give you some application verses in a moment, but in reflection, I think one is this. Let's find the places and times in our own lives and in the life of even our congregation where we say Jesus plus. When we declare to one another that Jesus isn't enough, that your relationship with God needs to look like my relationship with God, that the, 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 the plusness that I have incorporated, maybe the convictions, beautiful convictions that God has led you in because of following Jesus, but then placing them on someone else and saying, you've got to do that too to be real, a real Christian. I think we need to do some auditing in our hearts and auditing even in the life and the communication of our church. Where are we saying Jesus plus and, and say Jesus is enough? Jesus is enough to bring salvation. It's the grace of God. So one, do some auditing around Jesus plus. Second is embrace our usness. I, I got to tell you, I think usness could be the word of the year for, for Christians if we just want it to be. Uh, this is us. This is why we have this series. I, I talked to somebody this week who said that uh, someone they know, it's a part of our church, went to another church for a, an event at the church, and they looked around the church, and it was a bunch of people that looked exactly like them, and it was, it was this person who said, I miss my church because there's a unique usness to the gospel and friends. The gift and the privilege of being a part of Lake Avenue Church is we don't have to read about other churches with all the usness. It's right here. And I pray more usness would come. One of my favorite scriptures is Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. Think of it in this context. Neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. So my, how do we break bread? Stop adding to Jesus with one another and pray for and fight for and want the us-ness of this community. So how, do we, so how do we create space, right, for relationship with others? And that's hard. We're, we're so busy. Um, but we have to go out of our way to do that. We have to be really good at creating space. We have to be really good at loving and forgiving. We've got to be so good at it that it pales in comparison in, uh, in, in, in the outside world to, to other people's love, right? And, and I think, I think I've, got, I've got two stories for you. History, my own. Uh, June of 1978. I was six. You can do the math. Um, six years old. I remember um, being home from church Sunday afternoon, um, running around the house doing whatever, and there knock came on the door. I was like six-year-old, thinking, "Man, I get to go. I'm excited because I'm going to go to the door and see who's there." Right. So I open the door, and Mrs. Terry is there. Now, Mrs. Terry lived a couple doors down from us, and Mrs. Terry had never, ever, ever been to our door before, not that I know of. Mrs. Terry said, is, is your mom home? I said, I, yeah, my mom was, mom was pretty close behind me. So I, they started talking, and I, you know, started doing my thing. But I do remember listening into the conversation, and the conversation went something like this. 
I'm so excited. We are so excited today. I want to invite you to church next week because we found out that this day that you guys are okay. <laughs> For those that you that are missing this one, it was the month that the Mormon church was told and had a new revelation that African Americans and blacks and people of color could now be invited into the temple. Up until that moment, they were not allowed into the temple. They could be Mormon, but you couldn't be in the temple. You couldn't get married in the temple. You couldn't be a part of the temple. But that was that moment. Now, I don't necessarily see that as a huge neck. I mean, that was, that was a thing that was happening, and Mrs. Terry came over, and she was so excited to invite us to church, and her boys then came over for the next, like, month and a half, and were like, hey, come play basketball with us. Let's go to this place that was not, what wasn't, like, I couldn't go there before. The invitation was there. There was relationship between me and the Terry boys that hadn't been there before. Fast forward to September of 96. My first church. First time I'd ever been a youth pastor. I was actually the interim youth pastor, just filling in and, and trying to figure this out. And sometime in the midst of that, I had figured out, my goodness, God really wants me to do this and not the other thing that I was planning on doing. And so I had a conversation with the pastor and had a couple conversations with the pastor. And at some particular point in time, we had a meeting. And in that meeting, that pastor said to me, look, I just don't think you're going to be able to relate to our kids. And that conversation went a little bit deeper, and he finally said, I just don't think a black person like you is going to be able to relate to the, most of the kids that go to this church. It was a church on the Central Coast, mostly white. That'll be news to most of the people at that church if they listen to this message. I left that church because of the racist pastor that was there. Y'all, we the ones who know what it means to be loved by the person of Jesus Christ have to be better at doing love in the world. We've got to do that. Because there are people out there that are chasing us down for it and they don't have this gospel that we have. We've got to be better. It reminds me of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless our righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. There's people pursuing righteousness out there, but we, have, we, we, we get this. So real quick, we're coming to an end. What, what are two tangible things in this text? And we're continuing next week in this text. What are two things we can do to grow in our ability to love one another and love the world around us? And one, I see right here in verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So very specifically, listening to those who are different from us and hearing what God is doing in their life and what God has done through their life, how they met Jesus, how the Spirit has moved in their life, the miracles, the signs and wonders, the ways that God is moving. Can we listen to one another? Can we respond to one another quietly by just intaking the stories of how God is moving in other people's experiences and lives. 
listening versus talking in a world that we live in with civility lost. We don't listen very well. We don't have models of it very well. Civility lost, so listening, needing one another, needing one another's stories of faith. Um, Chuck is a good friend of mine, and there are times listening to his stories of faith are fun, and then there's what I just heard this week, what he just shared with you. That listening paralyzed me. The grief, the pain, but I hung in there long enough to listen long enough that the Spirit of God taught me in my listening. So we need to be proximate with those who are different, and we need to have some wider vision. And listening in this text helped them understand and even get to this next point. And so, and so the listening part is really important because what you see happen is, is James pick up the, 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 the ball, right? He picks up the ball and he says, wait, 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 wait. Y'all, this isn't new news to us. Let's look back at what the prophet said in the scriptures that the Gentiles are going to be part of this. And that's what we have to do as well. We need to pick up our scriptures and say, God, continue to lead us so that we might understand a bigger vision of who you are. Pick up the scriptures so that we understand that love means love all people, that all people means all people. That we've got to do that in such a way that absolutely is understood in a different way. And that means for us that we've got to do what verse 19 says. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to come. And when we do Jesus plus, we tend to put plus in front of Jesus, right? We we tend to say, well, if you do this, then we we can help you get to Jesus. If you come here and listen to this, then we can get you to Jesus. If you do these few things, we can get you to Jesus. If you stop doing those things, then we can get you to Jesus. But that's not how Jesus entered and walked with any of us. So we should not make it difficult for those around us to access Jesus. We need to be on board with what the Spirit of the living God is doing. We need to listen to what the Spirit of the living God is doing in our midst and in our spirits. And when we do that, we get to shift. We have to adjust because we've listened. We get to adjust because we've gone back to our scriptures. We get to adjust because we know we're following the Spirit of God because we want to be on that same train that the the Spirit is leading. You don't want to miss that train. If we don't adjust, we miss it. And, and here's the reality is God's will is going to be accomplished with or without you. He will leave y'all behind. And he will continue to go where he's going to go. God's spirit wants to drag us along and we've got to be able to adjust with God's spirit into the places that God's calling us, those new, trusting, faithful places. One of the most important things that we need to understand in the ways that we have set rules for ourselves and for our organizations that do not lead to devout lives. They don't lead to devout lives in front of, in front of Jesus. They actually lead to us being an unwelcome, unwelcome committee for Jesus. We tend to push people off. We tend to hold on to our rules so tightly. And God's Spirit light. And we need, to, we need to flip that. So, so when we see God moving outside of our own understanding, of our own perceptions, 
of our own culture that we shift so that we can see the way God is moving in that space, so that we can glorify God because of what God's doing, so that we can cheer on what's happening, so that we can empower other people and their gifts and their responsibilities and the communities they are, so that we can hear and learn and be more the people of God. That's, that's our responsibility. That's our movement. And when we step back into Scripture next week, we're going to go to verses 20 and 21, and what we're going to see is compromise. Compromise, y'all. <laughs> I know, right? That's a dirty word. <laughs> that these people came together, and, and don't miss this. They came together over this huge theological conflict, and because their, their de desire was relationship, they moved towards a compromise that could help them be in relationship. They didn't care about who was right. They wanted to care about what was right, and they went and did it. We've got to figure out how to do that as well. So you're not, we're not used to having sermons end with a, a bit of a cliffhanger, but I think it's a good one. Because I think we need, I hope this drives you into your scriptures this week. I hope it drives you into asking the question, what's God calling you in your life and us as a church? Uh, I was pointed this, this verse out after the first sermon. I'd like to close with this. In Galatians, again, chapter 5. I don't know if I've ever read this before. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Would you please stand? And I'd like us all to close the service in our usness by holding hands and bridging across the aisle. I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to remind you, as always, if you need prayer for any reason, there's people who want to pray with you to my left. They're going to take you out of the room, most likely, because we have our meeting. And if you need to connect, there's people at our Connect banner. And if you're able to stay, we'll have a meeting that start here to call a pastor. But as we hold hands in this highly symbolic moment, given this very clear text, let me pray for us. Father, man, what a, what a privilege you've given us here at Lake Avenue Church to read a text like Acts 15 and identify so personally. to see the same kinds of conflicts and to know that they exist within the world we live in and in even some spaces within the life of your congregation, your church here at 393 North Lake Avenue. So God, would your word do what your word promises? Teach us. Encourage us. Correct us. Push us towards righteousness and obedience. Help this moment in which we are connected not just be a neat moment, but a true moment as we grow, as we sense where your spirit is leading. Give us ears to hear from one another. Give us ears to hear from your Holy Spirit. Help us to seek to be a church that doesn't make it hard for people to meet your son, Jesus. Forgive us in our own lives where we add to the gospel, where we say to really be saved, there's much more. 
Give us, restore unto us the joy of our own salvation so that we might live that way this week, this day, in the freedom of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week.